together, uh, we looked at, we closed out chapter 5, and we looked at our witness for Christ. And we know now that our witness is much more than just, you know, talking to somebody, passing out tracts, or whatever. But it really encompasses our whole lifestyle, 24-7, being a witness for Christ in all that we do, not just in, in what we say, in our personal life. You know, what we see in our kids, and uh, our families, our marriage, the workplace, you know, our relationships with our friends, even our relationships with our enemies. You know, I, I showed you the word conversation, how that in the Bible it's correctly used not as just something that you say, but always matches up to, to how we live. And through that, you know, our witness uh, to the world and I gave you the great verse that everybody ought to have memorized or marked in your Bible of Romans 14, 7, that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. It's always somebody watching our lives. Then I showed you the key word, uh, and we looked at it and really built the message around this was the word unto. And I defined that word for you in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel and uh, how that we need to be separated obviously from the world but what really needs to happen then once that happens is we get separated unto the gospel and uh, that becomes our lifestyle as a servant with a calling uh, to be a witness unto the gospel like John unto God's truth and of course we saw in verse 33 of chapter 5 that the reason for all this is that men may get saved, find the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. I showed you our witness is in two aspects. And we looked at the burning light, which is a picture of, you know, our witness to unsaved people, talking about the judgment of God. And then a shining light, what we are to save people, to help guide them and bring them through. And, um, you know, and in either case, we are to let, you know, our, our light shine. So, you know, with that in mind, I want to move into chapter 6 today, and we're going to start today, and, uh, you know, let me say this. If you're just someone who is newly saved, or you're someone that has uh, been saved, but maybe you're just getting plugged into the Bible uh, here at our church, or listen out there on the, uh, you know, through the YouTube, uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is a great lesson for you. This is going to help you understand some things about uh, not only what God wants to do in your life, but and how He's going to do it. For us older Christians, it's always a good reminder, you know, the price of learning is repetition. It's always a good reminder to, uh, especially if you're working with people, to keep these things uh, in the back of your mind. And uh, you will note that as we come down through chapter 6, uh, you will note that this is the third Passover. And I showed you when we started, John, that the Bible is laid out, John is laid out around four Passovers. This is the, this is the third one, the beginning of the third one. So this puts us about two and a half years into his public ministry. And uh, this story uh, will be found uh, in all four Gospels. There are some stories or accounts that are only in one. There's some that are in two, maybe some in three but this one is in all four accounts. Matthew chapter 14, I think Mark chapter 6, and then Luke chapter 9, I believe. 
And so when you see something like that, the first thing you want to remember is that there's, there's an emphasis here that God is trying to make. And, um, you know, one of the rules of Bible study, and I've given them to you about 20 or 25 simple basic rules, but one of the rules of Bible study is never, never overemphasize something that God does not. But at the same time, never underemphasize something that God emphasizes. And this comes from just spending time in the Bible and learning how God does things and what he does. Many, many of God's people waste so much time in their Christian life and in the Bible because they major on the minors. They don't really get uh, what's really important. And they spend a lot of time wasting time on things that are really not important and miss the big things. Now, in John chapter 6, this is all kind of introductory stuff to you. In John chapter 6, we find Christ portrayed as the bread of life. You probably want to put that at the head of the chapter. If you don't have it already, in John chapter 4, we saw him portrayed as the water of life. And in chapter 6, another thing, and this probably will not get anybody saved, but it, uh, it's the longest chapter of all the New Testament books of the Bible. It runs 71 verses. And uh, so it's a, it's a lengthy chapter because there's a lot in it that we, we want to learn. And the importance of this story in this chapter is something that every child of God should know and understand, especially if you're beginning to get into the Bible. Us older Christians, we have a tendency to forget some things that were early on. So it's always a good reminder taking us back to uh, where it all begins. And you're going to notice that in this great chat, in this chapter here, this great miracle that he's about to do in chapter uh, 6, it follows the big rejection of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees of chapter 5. And you want to just keep a mental note of those things. And you will see, in spite of the devil and the Bible scholars of the day trying to uh, corrupt the people and to do away with Christ and everything that he's doing, you're going to find that, as always, the common man knew who he was and accepted him uh, as their Messiah, and they followed him. And you always want to know this, and you never want to forget the fact that I don't care. I don't care what all the mainstream of Christianity does, how they depart from the Bible, how they make their Sunday services, a three-ring circus, whatever they do, the real bottom line of Christianity will always be the common man who is the remnant who just stays with the book and does what the Word of God says in spite of all the foolishness that's going on out there today. And that is illustrated when you see what's really going on here with the nation of Israel, and yet the common man with a common Bible finding out who he is. And it'll be the same way today. God will always be found working in that remnant. That's one of the greatest single things you'll ever learn about God. Back in Noah's day, there was probably eight billion people on the planet, and uh, yet uh, only eight made it. God did it through a remnant, and you're going to find that when God establishes Israel in the millennium, he's going to do it through a remnant. You're going to find in Ezra and Nehemiah, when God brought the nation of Israel, certain of them, back from the captivity to put them back in the land, it was a remnant, and you're going to find it today in church history right before uh, the second coming of Christ, just like the first coming of Christ, God will be doing his work through the remnant. So with that in mind, let's read our text today. 
and uh, follow along. And uh, let me, I, you know, let, let me just do this. Let's, it's follow along and it's see what you can pick out of this as I read it. Think if you can think where I'm going to go with things. You know, that's always a good thing. Some people just kind of veg out while you're reading it. And, and I don't necessarily want you to do that. I, I, I want you to read along with me. And, and you see, especially you people who are trying to learn the Bible, just see what you can pick out of there. Jot it down and then see how we line up here as we come through it. So let's read chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 14. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto, unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread uh, that these may eat? And he said, and this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, uh, There is a lad here which hath five barley lives and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. And therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley leaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for uh, the folks that are here today, the folks that are in on the YouTube and we just pray your blessings upon uh, everything that uh, we try to do today. We love you. We thank you, Father, for you loving us and giving us the Word of God. And may we learn today. We have so many young men and young ladies, moms and dads, couples in our church that are, that are beginning to grasp the Bible and learn the Bible. May this great lesson today, this great story, help illustrate in a clearer way how you want to do that with them. Help me to teach it clearly today, plainly. Help me, Father, to make these people understand through your Holy Spirit. Forgive us where we failed you, Lord. Put us under the blood today that we may be found faithful in giving out the Word of God. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, what do you see here? This is a great story. This is the story that most people know, um, the feeding of the 5,000. There are certain stories in the Bible that most people, even unsaved people, know, even if they don't know where to find them in the Bible. Everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, they may not know what's in the beginning of the Bible. Everybody knows the story of Genesis. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, even though they can't maybe find it. And you're going to find that through the natural course of things and time and people, everybody understands or knows something about the event called the feeding of the 5,000. And as always... 
for us, there will be, as we look at this, let's start with this, there'll be three applications to this that you want to you get down if you don't have it. Historically, yet it's another miracle. And we know that he comes to Israel with signs and wonders out of Exodus chapter 4, and we've seen that all the way through. Doctrinally, this will be a picture of Christ feeding the nation of Israel in the wilderness during the tribulation period. And this will be Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14, and Revelation chapter 12. Be part of it there. Inspirationally, uh, this is the element that God will use to teach you the Bible. And I want to clearly emphasize that. This will be the element that God will use to teach you the Bible so you can find your calling and that you can be a witness under the gospel, under God's truth. And this is one of the most important messages. If you're a young Christian this morning, uh, this, is, this is one of the most important messages that you, can, you, could, ever, you know, could ever hear if you can apply it. Now, when we begin to get into your Bible, when you begin to get into your Bible, you need a couple of things to be successful. And, of course, first of all, you need to have the right Bible. And I'm talking about the right Bible. I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version. And then, of course, uh, uh, when, I, when I was preaching at the, at the Methodist place uh, last week, and here's a case where you guys can learn from this because you've got to see around your surroundings and you've got to be smarter than the problems around you that are going to pop up. Well, they're setting up chairs and they're setting up tables and uh, they're putting out Bibles and they're putting out NIVs. And, uh, you know, so, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about and preach Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the council on Godly, that thing there. So, which reads nothing like that in the NIV. So immediately I thought, I'm going to have a problem here because they're going to follow me in that, and they're going to they're gonna spend more time trying to figure out why that word doesn't match what I'm saying, uh, and I'm going to lose them in that. So I just, smarter than the problem, I just said, you know what, I'm going to talk to you out of Psalms chapter 1. I went through my introduction to Psalms chapter 1 being a prelude to life and a model for our walk. And I said, you know what, today, just sit back and enjoy this message. Don't open up your Bibles. Don't worry about it. Just listen to me what I've got to say. You can go back and study it later, but right now today, just sit back and relax. I want to tell you a story, and I want you to listen. Not one person opened up their Bible. And, of course, I got a chance to preach the whole message out of a King James 1611 authorized version, which, uh, which uh, you know, that they, none, of them, none of them had. But it's a thing where if I wouldn't have done that, they'd have been all caught up trying to say, well, that word doesn't match my word. I didn't know what it said. I didn't want that, see? It's just a matter of taking that out of the context and putting it over here, and nobody, nobody was the wiser. But you've got to have the right Bible, first of all. The second thing, obviously, you have to be saved. It's the Holy Spirit of God who's going to lead and to guide you into all truth. The next thing you need to have is, is the right church. Uh, You've got to have a Bible-believing church off the true line out of the book of Acts that understands, uh, you know, what their job is and, and what they're going to do and what their responsibility is to you. The fourth thing you need is a teaching priest. This is what Israel didn't have in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3, that said for a long time they've been out with, they have been without the true God and uh, uh, no teaching priest and no law. You've got to have a pastor who understands two things. You've got to have a pastor who understands where he wants to get you, but also how he's going to get you there. 
And if you don't have that, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys, you know, over the years, and they say, hey, we're going to call a pastor, you know, we're going to meet with some guys, and, um, you know, and uh, we, uh, we, we just wanted to know, uh, what, what should we be asking them? And I, you can sum it up in two questions. You don't have to spend a lot of time. You can ask him too. You don't even have to buy him dinner. You can just send him back on the plane. But you simply look at him and say, okay, if we call you as our pastor at our church, this church wants to grow spiritually. Tell us where you're going to take us as a church and then tell us how you're going to get us there. If he can't answer those two, he ain't going to do you any good. That's the job of a pastor. The job of a pastor is to get you to a place where God wants you to be in your life, but most of them aren't concerned about that. They're concerned about what they want to do. They're concerned about what they want to accomplish. They don't ever look at the church as individuals. They look at the church as somebody that's there to do something for them. Hey, God God has a calling for you. My job is to help you find that calling, but I have to have a plan to get you there. And uh, that's the key. And then the, the, the fifth thing is you've got to have the right attitude toward the Word of God. Attitude is everything. When you come to this book, you've got to do as the Bible says, when we heard the Word of God, we received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God effectually worketh also in you that believe. And when you get those things going for you, then God will begin what he talked about in Philippians 1, 6 that we talk about all the time. God will begin that good work in you. And this story, inspirationally, will help you hopefully better understand the process and how he's going to do that. Now, as I come through this story, we're going to go back and we're going to break it down. You're going to find six key areas that you need to understand that God is going to put into your world, or at least you need to understand uh, where you're at with this. Now, this, these are personal things that I'm going to give you. These will take place in your life after you make the commitment to God that you're going to be what He wants you to be. You get saved. You come to that point in your life, like so many of you, that you're going to buy into this ministry. You're going to be part of this ministry. You're going to grow through this ministry. And then you begin to realize that the Word of God is everything that God said it was, I said it was, and you want to begin to uh, take that place in your life where you really learn your Bible. And these things that I'm going to talk about are things that you need to know about yourself. Also, what you need to know about how God is going to do some things, because they're vital. And as I teach you the Bible... You know, you need to recognize these things and understand that this is what is going on. There's a lot of things in Christianity that the devil's going to try to use that are good things, but he's going to try to use to distract you. And you need to be smarter than the problem. You need to look beyond the circumstances and see the hand of God in whatever is taking place in your life. It's just that simple. Most of God's people cannot do that. So they get canceled out before they, they, they ever get started. And this is what will go on between you and God. We talked about this Thursday night on the inside man. When God is doing what he's doing in the inward man. 
So let's begin to look at these six. I'm going to break them down very simply for you. I think they'll help enlighten everything for you. Let's look, first of all, let's look at verses 1 through 6 again. After these things, Jesus went over uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is, uh, is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. There it is, the third one. And when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And he said, uh, and, and this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. All right, now what do you see in that? The first thing I want to tell you is this. The first thing you need to understand that if you're going to learn the Bible and you're going to get anything from God, it's going to take a miracle of God in your life. Your education is not going to help you one bit uh, in giving you the Bible. You're going to have to realize that it's going to take a miracle for any of us to get God's truth. You know why? Because they're diseased. They have infirmities. And you and I have our infirmities. It's our flesh. And the only way you're going to overcome that flesh is something supernatural taking place in your life with the Word of God. And this idea that you can just get saved and then, you know, take a passing uh, acquaintance with the Bible and read it and then and learn the Bible through that, that, that's not going to work that way. I need, first of all, the miracle of the new birth in my life, and then I need the miracle of God giving me the light that I can't get because of the fact that I'm diseased. I have an infirmity. You see, education feeds your flesh. It feeds your ego. Guy pops around and get a doctor's degree or a PhD and all that stuff. He likes to be, he likes to be noted for that. It, he thinks it gives him some kind of status. When in actuality, it does nothing for him spiritually. It may, it may bolster his flesh but it doesn't make him any more spiritual than the guy who's the dirt farmer out there in Kansas who, who, who pulls a plow with, in his bare feet but has got a King James Bible that he studies in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening. You know, I need God to supernaturally give me his supernatural book, and you need to understand that. If you think you're going to get that book just by you sitting down and God's going to honor you with it because of, of who you are, you're out of your mind. You're going to have to labor to get into that book. He says, a workman which needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's going to take something supernatural in your life for you to get the Bible. You know why? Because me and God are not on the same level. I don't think like he thinks. I don't do the things he does. If I was left to myself, I'd be in hell this morning. But you know why I'm not? Because God supernaturally gave me the new birth. And you know why? You can be sustained the rest of your life after you're saved because he'll supernaturally give you his supernatural book. But you ain't going to get it on your own. You need to understand something. And I know most of God's people do not understand this today. They certainly don't get taught this or preach this. But you need to understand the need for God to, com- to continually inject himself into your world and your life. In the book of Judges, 
He gives them judges. What did the judges do? They kept injecting God into the nation of Israel when they kept getting off track. In church history, you're going to find the seven great awakenings. What were they really? They were God injecting himself into this country to keep it on track. Your own life. Sunday morning, Thursday night. You know what God's doing here this morning through this message? He's injecting himself into your world. He's keeping you honest. You may not want to admit it openly or publicly, but if there's things going on in your world inside, he's knocking on your door this morning. He's injecting himself into your life. That's the importance of a Sunday morning or a Thursday night. And of course, you know, I'm going to tell you something. The most terrible time in a Christian's life, the most terrible time in a Christian's life will be the day that God quits injecting himself into your life. The worst day of a child of God's life will be the day that God leaves him alone and puts him out there on his own. And believe me, in over 50 years of ministry, I've seen that many, many, many times. God has to keep injecting himself into your life and my life or we are in trouble. You know why? Because we have a disease. We have infirmities. We have struggles. And you need to know that. You know the reason why COVID-19 killed so many of God's people spiritually? Because some of them didn't go to church for over a year, two years. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where I'm just telling you right now. It's, it, it, you cannot stay out of God's house that long and not have it affect you. And don't think for a moment that your self-injections are going to be better than God's injections. It doesn't work that way. But the devil knows how to throw roadblocks up for, child, for, for God's people that they get so afraid of the roadblock and they don't understand. There can never be a time in your life when God isn't through the church structure injecting himself on a regular basis. That stops in your world. This, the world is filled with God's people who claim to be saved, and many of them probably are, that are out back in the world today. You know why? Because God stopped injecting them. God just let them do it themselves. What a terrible thing that is. And you can't do that. Now, the second thing, verses 7 through 9, Philip answered him, 200 pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them might take a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Now, so it's time to feed them. Verse 5 says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw the great company, 5,000 people, come unto him, he saith to Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? He wants to say, he, he says, okay, where are we going to get the bread now to feed these 5,000 people? And, and, and Philip, you know, Philip is just like most of God's people. He fails to see that this problem 
It's not a problem for the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Most problems that we think are terrible problems are really not a problem for the Lord. They're a problem for us because we don't see it from a spiritual standpoint. We see it like Philip. We see it from a physical standpoint. 5,000 people, and all we got is this little bit of food here. Lord, how are we going to do that? How many times have we all been in situations that looked like it? And I would call that an impossible situation. I'm not sure with the finest little penknife you had, you could divide it up to 5,000 people. That's an impossible situation. How many times have we all been in an impossible situation where we want to throw up our hands? And the truth of the matter is, what is a major issue for us is no problem at all for God. Living in the natural or living in the supernatural? So know this, because as a human... We can't get on God's level. Sometimes, and you need to know this, sometimes to train you and to teach you and to bring you through the next level, he will put you into an impossible situation just to see what you'll do. Look at verse 6. And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. God always knows what he's going to do. He wants to see if you and I are on the same page with what he's going to do. Boy, there's the problem. There's the problem. God used this situation to teach them about his supernatural power in their life. Now, I got to say this. Let's don't pretend that we're all really spiritual this morning. And I know we are most of us, but I don't want you to get to the place in your life where you think that you've arrived here because I want you to know that these same two apostles that are mentioned here had been with him from the day one back in Matthew chapter 10, and they've seen every other miracle he had done. Laps of faith in your life and my life will happen. These guys saw every miracle that he did. (coughs) They saw the water turn to wine. They saw everything that he had done but yet they still doubt it. Don't think just because you know your Bible and because you've been around for a while and you've got to go to handle on it that you, you're immune from this. And look at verse 6 again. Philip said, asked, how are we going to do this? And he said this to prove him, for he himself would he would do. You know, God will put impossible situations, humanly speaking, in our lives to see what we will do to prove you. He wants to see in your life and my life who claim to love God, who claim to have the Bible, who claim to be spiritual. He wants the proof of what we will do isn't by when we shoot our mouth off of how much we love God around a campfire someplace, but rather when the tough times come that proves us. And they will come. God will always know what he's going to do. He does this because he wants to see if you're on the same page with him. Back in the book of Joshua, we see this so aptly illustrated uh, in the wars that they went through and fought to kick out all the nations of Satan that had been 430 years the devil been putting down there. And then they set up their government in the book of Judges 
But the key here is in Judges chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, he tells them, after they're in the land, that he didn't drive out all the nations out of the land. He left some of those satanic nations there. And you know why he says he did that? To prove Israel. You see, he laid the guidelines down in, Genesis, uh, in Joshua chapter 1. He says, if you'll have great success and prosper and nobody will ever touch you if, you'll, if you will believe the Word of God, if you'll obey the Word of God, and if you rest in the Word of God. And that is a great three-point for you and for me. He does this to see if they will trust the promises of God or the Word of God or not when the tough times come. There's no problem trusting God's Word when everything is fine in your life. Are you kidding me? The real test of what you're made of was what you do with that book when God proves you. And you know what proving does? It takes us to other levels. It brings us up higher than we were before. Because with every circle of proving and tempting the things that we go through when we stay with the book, you come out better than you went in. The Bible is a book of God's proving man out. In Adam and Eve, he put them down in the garden. And he put a tree of life down there and a tree of good and evil. And he told them to stay away from it to prove what they would do. I wrote, he gave you in Joshua, in Judges, where he gave Israel nations. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that we are to prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8 says that we are to prove the sincerity of our love toward God. And 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21 says that we as God's people should prove all things. God is in a proving business. The real tragedy of Christianity <coughs> is that God's people are always wanting God to prove himself to them. Let me tell you something, folks. God's got nothing to prove to you. He already knows what he's going to do. All things work together for good to them love God. He's already got it figured out. It isn't a question of God proving himself to you. It's a question of me and you proving ourselves to him. And how do we do that right here? I'm telling you young people right now that are starting the Bible, uh, you, once you decide you're going to get into the book and once you're going to decide you're going to do what's right, you're going to have some issues in your life. I know most Baptist preachers get up and say, oh, trust Jesus Christ, your own personal Savior, and all your problems are solved. Well, all your problems are solved as far as eternities begins. But boy, you open up the whole can, brother, when uh, you decide you're going to do what's right because there's somebody out there that doesn't want you to do what's right. And now your life is a constant proving ground. And God knows what he's going to do. He just wants to see if you know what he's going to do. And you can trust him in it. So God will allow things in our lives to prove us out. He won't take it all away. Now, I, I, I'm sorry I can't ignore the elephant in the room here. But our most recent test was covert 19. If it did anything at all from a spiritual standpoint, I'm not taking away the severity of it. I'm not taking away, you know, do what they say and protect yourself as best you can. I'm all for that. We did that. I'm dead. But I am telling you this. It purged Christianity. And it purged this church. It purged every church. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where, how do you view something like that? Bible says, in all things, give thanks. Can you give thanks for that? 
You say, well, I, I, I give thanks I didn't get it. Could you give thanks if you got it? I mean, come on. Can we talk this morning? You think God, the devil snuck in the back door and gave it to you without God knowing about it? You think somewhere over in China, either from a bat crap or whatever it came from or some Chinese whatever, put it all together and stuck it in there to give it to everybody in the world. And you think that happened? And an angel ran in and said, Lord, you ain't going to believe what happened in China. (laughs) It's things like that that he will prove us. No man liveth unto himself and no man dieth unto himself. If we live, we live unto the Lord. If we die, we die unto the Lord. Therefore, we are the Lord's. But God's people can't get to that, see? We want to trust God and serve God in laws that it doesn't mess up our agenda. As long as our lifestyle. Hey, I know how it is. You ain't telling me anything. I know how it is in the morning when I get up in the morning and the coffee thing don't work. My day's gone. I'm mad. I'm not happy. I want to get Keurig on the phone and cuss him out. Now I got to run down to a coffee place and get me a coffee. Listen to him say, tell me to say hi to you at your coffee place. All the time, the girls are saying, you're going to see her today? I'll tell her hi. I'll tell her hi. Yeah, that's... But it ruins, I know how it is when something ruins your day. But you know what? That's life, isn't it? You know why God gave you the Bible after you got saved? So he could get you through things that we got to go through in life. If you believe it. He's going to prove you. He doesn't believe any of us. I believe everything he says. He believes nothing I say. He don't believe anything you say. I don't believe anything you say. (laughs) At least we're in the same boat. He doesn't believe anything we say. You know why? Because he's heard so much lip service down through history. He's heard so many people tell him with their mouth what they were going to do, but their heart was far from him. So you know what he does? He wants you to prove the sincerity of your love. So he gives you a book filled with principles and promises, and then he puts circumstances in your life to prove us. See what we're going to do. Growing through adversity. I mean, I am just telling you. During the COVID-19, you know, there there were Christians all across this city, all across this country. I had one guy say on TV, I haven't been to church. Don't go to church. I haven't been to church in nine months. And it showed. I'm not saying you don't, you do stupid things, but I am saying through everything, God has a way for you to navigate through it. You got to find that way. We did. I took a lot of flack for it. People didn't like it. Some people left the church. Bye-bye. I can't remember the words of that song, but it goes like, so long, senorita. I don't care. We're not going to shut down the Great Commission just because a pandemic has hit the planet. And you know what? We find a way. 
If we have to wear a mask, fine. If we don't do this anymore, fine. But we find another way. God never intended us to get saved, give us the Holy Spirit of God, then shut it down because we got a fever of 102. We find a way. God's people have always found a way. Doesn't mean you be stupid about it. Doesn't mean you don't protect yourself. It means you don't stop. There's no end date on the ministry. And, you know, in our church, we grew through it. We got stronger. We got closer. We got more effective with people. I listened to AJ last week, and he talked about the fact of why God's people don't do the things they do. Because we're selfish. It's all about us. We don't really care about the Great Commission. We don't really care about somebody out there lost and dying or going to hell. We want to protect ourselves so we don't get sick. Well, I'm all for that. But you know what? People are still dying and going to hell. That's a greater pandemic than anything that we'll ever face. We never would have had what we have with our, with our youth now if it wouldn't have been for what the, the pandemic. I mean, we ha- it forced us to rethink everything that we're doing. The, the, the greatest thing we've got going is back there in that Timothy group where you young men and young ladies are learning the basic fundamentals of preaching and teaching and working with people. You're going to be in value. We didn't have that before. I, I look at the, the Bible explorers back there and all that they do to, to give those kids and work with those kids on a level. And now we're going to open up the, the baby corner uh, back there and, and, and work with that and help with that. Everything, we would have never had that. We'd have went on with a glorified babysitting program. Now we got all of you young men and young ladies through the Timothy involved in teaching and training and working with kids. Phenomenal job. We never would have had that. We never would have had that. Our lifeline ministries. We, and, I'm, and I'm not knocking the prayer groups upstairs. They served their purpose. They were wonderful. But in time in churches, you, gotta, you outlive things. You know that? You outgrow things. I know when a pandemic hit, we couldn't do that. And so what we did, I found another way. We did the lifeline. Now they've exploded all over the country. People involved in, in what you're doing and people training and giving and working together. We didn't have that. Those are the things that came out of our opposition. Those are the things that God said, I'm going to throw this church a curveball, and I want to see if I'm going to prove them. Are they going to run under a rock someplace? Are they going to hide? Is the pastor going to fold up his tent and go home and say, oh, yeah, or what's he going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead through it. Incredible opportunities. See, God wanted to see what we would do. And boy, God wants to see what you will do. He knows what he's going to do. And whatever problem we think is a problem to him, it ain't really a problem. We just don't see how he's going to bring it through. 
Now, the other thing here you want to note this is my little two guys, Philip and Andrew. Now, both these guys had been with the Lord for a long time, since the get-go. And I see here that uh, Philip is the first one who is a doubter, and then Andrew begins to doubt. And I take from that a principle that I've seen work in verse 7 and 8, that our doubt in God's ability will spread to others. You need to be careful who you hang out with. I don't like negative people in my world. I may love them. I may have to be with them. I may talk with them. But I limit what I get from them because I don't need your negativity rubbing off on me. I got to stay positive. I want to look for what God is doing, not the fear that you have in your heart of what you're afraid the world is going to do to you. The world isn't going to do one thing to any of us that God doesn't allow to happen. So let's just trust him to get us through. It's just that simple. Now, here's the problem. 5,000 people. And one little guy with five loaves of bread and two little fishes. That's seven. Doctorally, I told you this picture is a picture of the feeding of the 144,000, so you got seven, seven years of tribulation. Inspirationally, I told you it was a picture of God dealing in the church age, so you got seven, seven periods in church history. And from a human standpoint, this situation is impossible. Like us here at Old Paths. Somebody would look at what we got down here and what we do, and, and if you would tell them that, you know, this church is reaching the world, they, 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 they wouldn't believe it. You realize that last Thursday night on Bible study, just, 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 we had a guy on from Belfast, Northern Ireland, he said, good morning, Old Past Baptist Church, because where he was, it was morning. Realize we got him in England. We got him in Africa. We got him in Mexico. We got him in Holland. We got him everywhere. In fact, if you're on out there listening to us, let us know where you're at. We'll, we'll, get, a, we'll get a world map in place and put little pins on it with your name on it where you're at, and we'll pray for you. I am telling you. It's impossible to think that. Well, they looked at the five loaves and the two little fishes, and he says, it's impossible for you to feed 5,000. They look at this church and say, it's impossible to reach the world. Well, it may be impossible for you, but it ain't impossible for God. But we'll have to go through some proving to get there. And we have. Every one of you who are here today in that book, part of this ministry, holding the line with me, you had to prove some things in your life between you and God on the inside, see? On the inside. And uh, it's, like, it's like this church reaching the world. But it's like you. God using you to take somebody else's life and invest your life in them. God will, God will do the impossible through you if you allow him to work through your life in the impossible situations to prove you. Song of Sodom, and I love it. Song of Sodom and that great internet book between me and the Lord in 2-1. You know what it says about Christ? Just one little verse. It says he's the lilies of the valleys. In the valleys of your life, there'll still be the lily. You know what he says over there in uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 28? It says he's not only the God of the hills, he's the God of the, the valleys. We think that God's on the mountaintop. No, God will be in the valleys with you every place you go. He's the lily. There's no dark time with God. I always tell you that 
goofy little story. I love to have been saying it for years, and I'm probably going to make somebody mad when I say this, but that's my gift. <laughs> I remember when I first saw it years ago, the, the little thing put up by the neo-evangelicals, the footprints in the sand. And a guy says, I had a dream last night that I was walking along the beach with the Lord, hand in hand. And as I looked down at the beach, I saw our footsteps side by side together. What sweet fellowship we had. And we walked along for quite a while. And then I noticed that there was only one set of footprints. I thought to myself, I get emotional with this. I thought to myself, Lord, why did you leave me? We had two sets of footprints side by side, and now there's only one. Why did you leave me? And the Lord looked down and said, Bob, that single set of footprints, I didn't leave you. That's when I carried you. Wow, really? I got some news for you. That's the worst Bible doctrine you could ever get in your life. You're walking along side by side, two foot of print prints, and then all of a sudden there's one saying he's carried you. I got news for you. That's neo-evangelical junk. You know how I know it's not true? That there's no two footprints in the sand and then one? Because I'm in him and he's in me. We are one. We're not walking side by side. I'm in him and he's in me. I'm in his body. He's in my body. I'm sealed under the day of redemption. He's in me. They two sets of footsteps. They're just one. His in me. That's doctrine. I know that make you mad. That's okay. Now I'm telling you, one of those things uh, that you get into, and it's 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 quite incredible. Look now, the third thing, verses ten and eleven. <coughs> And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Mark the word make. Now there was much grass in the place. Ooh, we're all going to get high on this one. <laughs> You're laughing at that, but there'll be some neo-evangelical idiot out there that that's what they'll do. They'll link this verse up that over there in Matthew where it says Jesus was high on a mountain. Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise the fishes as much as they would. What do you see in that? Here's the next thing we see. The first thing I want you to see is that God will get you alone to teach you about his word. God doesn't want any other distractions in your life when you start to learn the Bible. Now, Mark chapter 6, verse 31 says, tells the same story, and here it says it's a desert. So we get the idea, if you just read that one, that it's like the Sahara Desert or the Mojave Desert, that it's full of sand. That's not the case. Uh, John 6, 10 says it's with much grass. The word desert simply means that it's deserted. It's a place where there's nobody around, but it's filled with grass. And now I want you to see that grass is good food for the sheep. So when he said these people sat down, he had them sit down where there was plenty of food to eat. And I want you to notice it says verse 10 that he made them sit down. 
Sometimes you just won't sit down to get the Word of God. God's got to make you sit down. Sometimes you're too busy doing your own thing or running around, and you just want to give God what's left. And if you really want to learn the Bible, you've got to sit down. You've got to stop. And he says he gets him alone. I've said it before. You've got to get everything else out of your life. You can't build two relationships at the same time when you're trying to build a relationship with Christ. And he does this. He does this. He gets them alone to give them the food that he wants them to have. But this whole circumstances of these people, 5,000, I mean, the disciples weren't the only one who were wondering how they're going to eat. When your belly starts to growl and you're 5,000 people and you're about 20 clicks from the nearest McDonald's, I want to tell you something. You're wondering how you're going to eat too. And God will put you in impossible situations in the middle of the grass to get you alone in an impossible situation to prove you, to see what you'll do. Credible story. Prove us in an impossible, humanly speaking, situation to see what we'll do with the book as he gives it to you. Now, here's another thing. Verse 11. He gives thanks. This goes back to what I said. Do you give thanks for everything that God puts into your life? I mean, we're in an impossible situation. 5,000 people, nowhere near enough food, and he's thanking God for it. Can you? You see, I know why some people need to hang on to the covert thing, of, you know, that they're right and this is that. I, I know why you've got to believe that, see, because the alternative is just too damaging to you. The alternative is you couldn't trust God for squat. To turn to the end, when push comes to shove, you headed out the door. I understand why you've got to hang on to your falsehoods. I get it. I know human nature enough. You've got to hang on to your, your value stick here that you think that you did the right thing. I won't tell you what. It's never the right thing to bail out on God's ministry when he's got a direction going. We find out where he's going and we go with him. Let him prove us. I get it. I understand. Totally get it. I get it. He gave thanks. And we need to give thanks for the impossible situations that we get into. You know how hard that is? That's so easy for me to preach. You get out there this afternoon and you're out there in a hot freeway at 90 miles an hour and 90 degrees and your tire blows out, you don't, your spare's flat. Thank God for that, do you? You go to work tomorrow morning and the boss comes in and says, hey, we're going to have to let you go. Do you thank God for that? Or do you think he snuck in behind God and God doesn't know about it? You see, God will allow things to come into our world to see what we're going to do. He knows what he's going to do. He wants to see what you're going to do. I can trust everything he says. He can't trust nothing we say. And then I want you to see this. Once he starts the multiplication of the food, which is the picture of the Word of God, first he distributes to the disciples. And the disciples give it to the people. It was God's supernatural feeding, but he gave it to men to give to others. And that's what so many of you do here. We got the book, the supernatural word of God. God gave it to us, but he intends for us to give it to others. And that's what we do. My job and everything I do is to get every one of you young kids, every one of you young couples, every one of you moms and dads, everybody under the sound of my voice to the place where God can use you to distribute his supernatural food 
to somebody else. Everything I do, everything we do, I don't care how mundane it may look or how much it's a fun thing or this, it all goes together for one purpose, and that is to get you everything I can with the Word of God to make you what God wants you to be. Everybody in this room who you're where you're at with God because of where you're at and you're doing really well, you're here because somebody else in this church invested in your life to get you there. Yeah, it was God's supernatural food, but he didn't just throw it all over the place and say, pick it up. He gave it to the disciples first and said, you give it to the people. And he's given us, us the word of God, and he tells us, you give it to the people. Fourth thing, verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. Now, this is so simple. You can have as much of the Word of God as you want. No limit to it. Your IQ isn't involved with it. Your education not having to do with it. Your bank account or your social status has nothing to do with it. God will multiply <coughs> His Word in your life. Once you get the right attitude of heart, and once you start doing what God wants you to do, and once God gets you alone, and once He starts to feed you, and He puts those things into your life, brother, He will multiply it in your life. And I've watched that in so many of your lives. Back in Exodus chapter 16, I, I think my favorite story on the Word of God in the Bible is the manna from heaven. And, uh, you know, each chapter of Exodus shows a different aspect of the Christian life. And chapter 16 shows the Word of God. And when he brought that manna down, they are in the wilderness of sin, picture of this world. Nothing in the wilderness of sin. There was no water. There was no food. There was nothing that would sustain them. That's a picture of you and me as a Christian being in this world and there's nothing will be sustained us. And they're starving to death. They're, so he gets water out of a rock, type of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then he brings down a manna from heaven picture of the Word of God. And that manna from heaven was a supernatural gift from God from heaven to the people down here. And it's given to God's people to give them food for strength. And I want you to notice that when he brought that down, God brought it right to where the people were. But they had to labor to get it. They just didn't stand there with their mouth open and it fell in. They had to labor to get it. They had to go out there and pick it up and put it in a basket. And I'll just throw this in. The mixed multitude, they didn't care anything for the manna. They thought it was boring and dry. God brought it at night. And in the morning, it was all around the camp when they woke up. And you see, God did it that way to prove them just like he gave you the word of God to prove them. Because when they woke up in the morning and all that manna was under and they put back the tent flap, they had to do one of two things, just like you have to do now that you've got the supernatural gift of God, the word of God. They had to reach out there and pick it up and eat it, or they had to trample it under their feet and go about their business, just like we do. But he says in Exodus chapter 16, verse 17, and some gathered more, and some less. You can have all you want. You can have all of the Word of God here that you want. 
Now, the fifth thing says is in verse 12, And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Verse 12, And when they were filled, that book will fill you up. That book will give you every desire of your heart. That book will fix every problem. It'll give you the delight. It'll give you the peace. It'll give you the joy. It'll give you everything the world cannot give you. And then he says, gather up the fragments that nothing be lost. You know, that Bible will give you a full life. I suggest you read a book by Dr. Ruckman uh, that was one of the books that he wrote several years before he died. We have it in a bookstore. It's simply called The Full Cup. And it is a, a story on his life of how God filled his cup up. And you know what? That ought to be the story and testimony of every child of God who ever got saved who falls in love with that book. God will fill you up with that book. And when you get filled up, you're full up, brother. Verse 13 says, 12 baskets full. You see, here it is. God will give you what you need to eat like he did that 5,000, but there's always stuff left over, so God will box it up for you. Don't they do that at the restaurant? You go there and you get your lasagna or you get your spaghetti or you get your this or that and you can't eat it all and the waiter comes up and he says, would you like a to-go box? And you say, sure, because you're going to eat it later. Well, you come to church on Sunday morning, you come to Thursday night Bible study, you get all this stuff, you get all these notes and you sit there and simply say, boy, I don't get all of that. You know what the Holy Spirit says? You want a to-go box? <laughs> Nothing's lost with the Bible. What you don't understand right now, God keeps in store for you. And two we, a month down the road, two months, three months, four months, a year down the line someplace, you keep growing, you keep doing what's right, God will bring all those things and reveal it to you, and you'll say, wow, I get it now. He'll connect the dots for you. Nothing's left over. Nothing's wasted. They had 12 baskets full. Somebody says 12. Why 12? Because the 12 tribes, salvations of the Jew, John 4, 22. So he got all these baskets. What's the baskets for? Stored up for later when you get hungry. He'll give you what you need for today, but he'll store up what you're going to need down the line someplace. You just don't need it right now. That book's an incredible book. You will get the Bible down on Thursday and Sunday, and you're, like I said, you'll not understand it all at one sitting. But God will store it up for you in 12 baskets, and in time he'll reveal it to you, connect the dots, and bring it right all together. Simply put, the Bible grows in you as you grow in the Bible. Now the last thing, verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Now, once they get the supernatural food from God, they immediately see and know who he is and why he's come. Knowing who he really is will be the key to knowing who you really are in Christ. Most people know him as Savior, but they don't go any farther than that. You can't know the book without knowing the author of the book. Now, this is a truth that says that prophet that should come into the world. They knew immediately once they ate the food and once they saw what he did and saw the supernatural abilities of the Word of God, the food that he gave them, they realized who he was. You want to know who he is? Get in the book. God's got three plans in that Bible. 
God's got a plan for the ages or the universe. God's got a plan for the earth. And God's got a plan for your life. And you need to know all three of them and how they are separate, but how they all go together. You only do that by getting to know him. And you can't really know the book without knowing the author of the book. And God will only reveal himself to us through his supernatural book, uh, through the word of God. You know, I think of Samuel back there in the great story of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3 when God was calling him. And he goes through that process. And at the end in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, And the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The only way God's going to reveal himself to you is following this process that I'm giving you today, understanding it, how internally it will work in you. Now, this story and pictures like this in your Bible will show you how God will work in your life. You know, many of you are right in the middle of this right now. God is doing some tremendous thing. God has made a process of our learning about him through his word. And it's so simple, but it's all built around a supernatural life through a supernatural book to prove you. God will get you to a church with much grass. He'll give you a teaching priest. He will have others distribute the, the bread of life to you. Your job is to sit down, Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, stand still, and I'll show you the, I'll show you the salvation of the Lord. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, study, do be quiet. Then you allow God to get you alone. You don't let anything else get in your world to distract you. No old boyfriend, no girlfriend, no this, no that. You just stay focused. And then you know that when you look at that book and you open it up every time, the most exciting thing about it is not what you understand or what you don't understand. The most exciting thing about it is in time you can have everything that's in it. There's no limit here on what you can get from the Word of God. And there will be nothing lost. God will store in your heart for tomorrow's work. When you, when you uh, determine uh, to get every ounce out of the book, God will get every ounce out of you. You know, I talk about how when I, and this is a great example, I talk about how that when I get into something in the Bible, I want to squeeze every drop out of it, and I've just about squeezed every drop out of the story as I could. But that's what God wants to do with you. He wants you to squeeze every drop out of that book so he can squeeze every drop out of you and do something with you. And it will only come as you allow God to do a miracle in your life. First off, a miracle of the new birth, the day you got saved. Second all, the miracle of a transformed life. God giving you a supernatural book and you trusting God so much and believing what he says that you allow him to prove you through the obstacles of life, the impossible circumstances, the things where most Christians are afraid of, the things that turn tail and run with most of God's people, the things that send them into hiding. You recognizing that this is God's hand and it may be God's hand in judgment here or doing this here, but for you and for me, it's a proving ground. Because we don't stop the ministry. We may have to alter it. We may have to change it. We may have to take a different course, but we never stop. And God will just keep taking you up different levels, keep adding things to it, giving you more blessings, take care of you and everything. It comes down to, and the key will always be allowing God to prove you. You leaving here today... Trusting God that whatever comes in your life, you're going, to let him, you're going to let him get you through it. It simply comes down 
and with this I'm done, simply allowing God through you to do the impossible because we believe the infallible. We believe that we got a book that will get us through anything in life and we don't have to fear it. doesn't mean you don't be smart with it. It just means that you don't put your tail between your legs and hide from it. You find a way around it. You find a way through it. Leadership leads. It doesn't just lead into good times. It leads into bad times. And when you get into the bad times and you find yourself in a place of leadership, that's when you really have to lead. Because people look and are drawn to leaders. Don't be like Andrew and Philip. Don't let the fear of others destroy you. Be a leader. Leaders lead. Leaders see God's hand in it even when you don't understand it. You just give for granted that God would never do anything. Uh, you, he may not, you, God will, you may not figure it out, but you know everything in your life is in his hands. And you follow that even when you don't know it. And God will prove you through it. And you'll come just like these people here. You'll come to a point where you'll see him as he really is. Well, we'll hold up there. Next week, we'll move on in John chapter 6. We'll be praying for everybody today at the rest home and everything else that's going on. And uh, we appreciate you being here today. Let's have prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you.